Today on Peace Talks Radio, even when nations are in conflict with each other, they often find agreement on managing shared water resources. It does flow across boundaries, and so water ignores our, our attempts at political separation. On our program, water negotiator Aaron Wolf, who studied spiritual traditions to improve his conflict resolution skills. When we pray, generally we pray side by side. And so one of the things that we've done is often put people who have the most difficulty with each other side by side, very, very close together. And this changes the dynamics perceptibly. Plus, an American couple who saw a safe water supply as the key to a more stable and peaceful community in Kenya and did something about it. When you are putting powder in water and you're stirring it up and you tell people to drink, well, you got to drink first. So I looked at this water and I said... I don't know. <laughs> Peace like a river flows today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight peacemakers throughout history and today and try to glean some strategies that we can all apply to reducing conflict in our daily lives. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Carol Boss. Aaron Wolf, a geoscience professor at Oregon State University, also has another job. For some time now, he's been one of the go-to guys when nations in conflict, or sometimes in outright war with each other, are trying to negotiate treaties specifically on water issues. He says that throughout history, and even today, whenever he's found conflict between nations, he's generally found agreement over management of water resources. And in facilitating negotiations, he's learned that sometimes you have to abandon that image that we've all come to associate with international negotiations. You know, teams from both sides sitting across from each other, usually with an enormous wooden table between them. Psychologically or energetically, this turns out to be one of the worst uh, positions to be in uh, when you're negotiating. Uh, if you if you think about energetically, it's it's very easy to conflict or to or to see people's anger, passion when you're looking at them across from you. And yet, when we pray, generally we pray side by side. And so, one of the things that we've done is is again in our training and facilitation is is often put people who have the most difficulty with each other side by side, very very close together. And this changes the dynamics perceptibly. The, the energy is very different psychologically. It's very difficult to argue sideways. So one thing that anybody can use, or two skills, when one feels the anger arising and they're in a situation where they'd rather it not arise, is, is simply sit next to the person with whom the tension's arising, sit next to them closely. And the second thing is listen. Listen deeply, listen profoundly, be there for the other person, and watch what happens when a person feels profoundly listened to. Those are are interpersonal skills that anybody can use and, and I'm convinced should use much more often than we do. Aaron Wolf has helped negotiate water treaties between Israel and Palestine, between the former Soviet Union states, also between China, Burma, and Thailand, and between states in the U.S. and other spots around the globe. He talked with Peace Talks Radio's Carol Boss. So you've said that water can be used as a means for people to talk about a shared vision of the future. And I was hoping you could delve into that more and tell us the circumstances under which you first realized that and perhaps give us an illustration. 
Sure. Well, I, I, I grew up in, in kind of two places where water was subtext to uh, the politics uh, here in Northern California, um, where as I was growing up, people were talking about the peripheral canal and water moving from north to south. And a lot of state politics were kind of wrapped around that issue. And we moved back and forth with my family to Israel, where water's been also subtext to the very difficult politics there between Arabs and Israelis. So I kind of grew up understanding that there was a relationship between water and politics, mostly understanding that it was a source of conflict, but also as as I started to get uh, better trained professionally uh, in both conflict resolution and in water resources management, that uh, also started to understand clearly that this was a, a medium to bring people together because it did flow across boundaries uh, and brought people into into a room, people with, with very different politics, uh, and gave them a, a language, really, to talk about their, their future together. So I, I know back when you were writing your doctoral dissertation, the State Department actually asked you to advise uh, the U.S. team on water negotiations um, during the Middle East peace process between Israel and Palestine. And it seems that we were tackling a whole number of issues. And by and large, it, it, it seems it was a failed attempt except for the water negotiations. And they still go on, I believe. So the talks between them continue on water despite all the other challenges to peace. In the early 90s, when the peace talks started between Arabs and Israelis, they designed the the peace talks into two tracks. There were bilateral talks between Israel and each of its neighbors uh, on the kind of high political issues of of sovereignty and and, uh, treaties and so on. And then there were uh, multilateral talks. There were five of them on issues that were considered regional. Uh, Water was one. Environment was one. uh, I think uh, nonproliferation, Jerusalem, uh, refugees. These were considered regional issues that that everybody had to participate in in order to, to tackle the, the topics. And of those five that were started uh, in the early 90s, the only one that survives to today is the, is the water track. Arabs and Israelis have been talking about water both implicitly and explicitly since all of the states in the region were, were created uh, in the 1940s. And it became very explicit since the peace talks. Um, even though water was, was again, subtext to, to uh, conflict in the lead up to the Six-Day War, it also became one of the things that both Israelis and Jordanians and then Israelis and Palestinians would talk explicitly about, which then influenced the, the peace talks uh, more broadly. So people who would talk about water would, would induce or, or uh, influence the, the rest of the talks as well. Well, why is it? It seems that conflicts over water resources are are different than those over other resources or issues, and and in some ways it seems to transcend other disputes. I, I think you're right. There, there's a lot of different levels at which we we relate to water. One is a very practical level. It does flow across boundaries, and so anytime it it flows either across uh, Arab-Israeli boundaries or Indian-Pakistani boundaries or uh, Oregon-California boundaries, the solutions force people to think regionally. So, so on a very practical level, water ignores our our attempts at, at uh, political separation. Uh, but then I, th- I think you're right at much deeper level. 
levels. Uh, it, it hits us at, at each of our levels of humanity or, uh, or of being. So from the physical all the way up through the, uh, through the emotional and intuitive and a, and a spiritual level, uh, it, it hits us more deeply and more broadly and more profoundly, I think, than other, other resources. So again, with Palestine and Israel, even though you know we can probably call them bitter enemies that are abiding by um, prior water treaties, and I'm wondering, in what you just said, how prevalent is that over history and in the present? Oh, it's astonishingly uh, prevalent. Uh, if we look around the world where we find conflict, we also generally find agreements over water resources. Uh, if we look for actual wars between states over shared water resources, we have to go back to uh, 2500 BCE. Uh, the city-states of Lagash and Uma. Uh, went to war on a tributary of the Tigris uh, 4,500 years ago, and there hasn't been an actual war over water ever since. And in that same time, that that war also led to the first uh, official treaty between two states over water. And since that time, there have been 3,600 treaties uh, over water resources. So in 4,500 years, there have been zero wars and 3,600 treaties. So the violent conflicts over water are rare. So what are the issues that create conflict over water? Well, the violence at the international level is rare. We, we all know cases where, where water has induced violence at the subnational level. Uh, there are two states in India, for example, that conflict over the, the Kovri River. There's been throughout history uh, tribal violence or, or ethnic violence or, or land, uh, arable land-related violence that also has a water component. So at the subnational level, Unfortunately, violence is is quite um, uh, prevalent. Uh, it's at the international level that it's not. I, I did want to come back to the um, Arab-Israeli uh, context that it, it goes beyond adhering to treaties. Um, in the Second Intifada in the in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, when it became clear to both sides just how violent the violence was going to be between the two sides. Both the Israeli Water Authority and the Palestinian Water Authority took out a joint ad asking both sides to try and respect the infrastructure, the water infrastructure, because it had become so enmeshed that you couldn't harm one side's water without harming your own. Well, maybe you can describe to us one of your first experiences, your formal experiences, mediating about the uh, Salween River, which is the body of water shared by China, Burma, and and Thailand, and what you learned from that experience. Well, I I think... um this process of moving from kind of being an academic that describes disputes to to becoming um, actually a part of the facilitation process is a very gradual one. And, and one of the early ones was, as you point out, the Salween River that, that nominally started as an academic conference, but then quickly moved into uh, a, a formal process of, of facilitation with a team of people that were, were working on it. And I think I learned a number of things. One, the, the conflict resolution that I'd been trained in had, has been very Western, uh, kind of rational-based. Uh, we're taught and we're trained that um, people come to agreements when it's in their interest to agree. And, and that feels very much uh, circular because when you ask, how do you know it's in parties' interest to agree, the only, the only proof is is that they came to agreement. So uh, it feels very tautologic. It feels very circular. 
And those of us, anybody who's ever been in a real uh, dispute setting where there's real emotion, a real feeling present, uh, recognizes that there's often much more going on in the room than we can define rationally. It's not a process that you can model uh, simply using checks and balances or or, uh, rational interests. Can you describe perhaps an experience with um, one of those, maybe um, around the Salween River? Sure. The the kinds of things that we don't learn in in Mediation 101 was that uh, we had set the date uh, for the the beginning of our conference. We thought we had all the parties on board. Uh, And then we set the date. It was uh, September 9th, 1999. And we sent out formal invitations. And immediately, the government of of Burma wrote a very harsh letter uh, complaining about the meeting and and uh, accusing the the sponsors of uh, of bowing into uh, pol- political opposition to the Burmese government, uh, and it was it was absolutely unclear why the sudden turnaround. Well, it turned out that for them, when we set the date September ninth, nineteen ninety nine, that came out nine nine ninety nine, and they assumed that we had chosen that date, referring to eight eight eighty eight which was the um, election that was canceled and the current uh, military government took power. And so they assumed that we were doing some kind of numerologic political statement. Uh, That's the kind of thing that you can never prepare for and have to understand that there's so much more going on than than the things you'd like to think are on the table. So you got to realize that something was really missing from the conflict resolution process. And I know that I've read about um, this aha moment that you had. Well, I think part of it was was a kind of nagging feeling that, that we weren't getting the whole picture when we focus on rationality and the things that we can measure. But anybody who's done it knows that there are these kind of transformative moments where suddenly everybody in the room is thinking differently. And the political scientists call that the aha moment. Uh, We know it, we experience it, we feel it. It's not at all a rational process, but we absolutely know it when when suddenly the whole room changes, the feeling in the room changes, the mood in the room changes, the understanding changes. So I, I started to focus on that particular moment, those transformative moments within negotiations, wondering how we can learn more about the context and the settings of transformation and and where can we learn about this process. And again, it's not in the kind of classic uh, conflict resolution uh, training. Well, one of the images that we work with in in water resources negotiations is one image of a watershed, a river system with political boundaries drawn on the map. And you see how the separations are the things that are stressed. Well, when you take the boundaries off the map, the only thing that's left are the things that unite us. It's the river system itself that flows, the tributaries flow to the to the main stem. And taking the boundaries off the map feels like an analog to that transformative moment. And I was playing with that image, the a basin with the boundaries and a basin without the boundaries, uh, with a, a, a colleague of mine um, who is in an in a international agency, development agency, and also is, is, uh, has a deep spiritual life. And he looked at the images and he said, you know, that looks like an analog for spiritual transformation. And together we started to talk about what it would be like to try and 
tap into that world, the people who've been thinking most deeply about transformative moments or the transformation process, to see if we couldn't learn something, both about context and settings for transformation, but also tools and, and, and process techniques that we can use to help facilitate our, our mediation processes. Well, that sounds like a um, very profound time for you. And where did it lead you? Oh, wonderful uh, search. We started with a, a conference uh, co-sponsored with the Pacific Institute uh, in Berkeley and the Vatican Science Council in Vatican City, where we brought people who'd been involved in water negotiation and spiritual leaders together uh, to see if there wasn't something we could learn from each other. It was a wonderful meeting, but very difficult because the, we don't have a lot of common language. Most people in water are trained in the measurable and the quantifiable and the, uh, in the rational. And the, the spiritual world has, has its own constructs and, and uh, language. But it was clear that there really was quite a lot to be learned from the, the world of, of uh, spiritual training. So the following year, I spent uh, mostly in the Middle East, uh, in Jerusalem, learning uh, some about Kabbalah, about uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, a little bit about Sufism, uh, which is a uh, Muslim ascetic uh, branch, some about uh, Christian um, ascetics. Then spent some time in Thailand learning from a, a Buddhist monk uh, who also was a mediator, mostly with forest issues. Can you tell us what you learned from him? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll share a little bit of that. Well, I think the, the most profound thing is, is how to be really present in a room. People who've talked to uh, Buddhist monks or, or people with uh, deep uh, meditative training, uh, when you talk to somebody like that, you really feel their presence. They listen. He listened in a way that... I can't remember being listened to before. You really feel like you're absolutely at the center of the universe. And that practice of deep presence, of deep transformative listening, uh, I think was the most important uh, skill that I, I learned uh, first from him and then from, from others. Uh, and he was able to, to carry that presence, that, that uh, simply on, on the basis of his presence and his listening skills, uh, he mediated not only between um, forest dwellers and the government, but also in southern Thailand between Buddhists and Muslims. And he had as much respect in the Muslim community as in the Buddhist community simply because of his presence. So that enabled you, I imagine, to think about how you can do more with conflict resolution. I think those are those are the the kinds of skills that uh, that the spiritual community offers. How to use silence in a in a productive and a, a useful way. Uh, we're not trained in that very well. We're uh, in the rest of the world. They joke about Americans. The, the joke is uh, to an American, what's the opposite of speaking? And the answer is waiting to speak. And, mm -hmm. and you notice when you listen to when you when you watch people in conversation, that's what they're doing. Their whole body language, their whole uh, energy is is waiting to jump into the into the conversation. But we also learn from spiritual traditions around the world this understanding that kind of anger and and force is generally a shield for vulnerability. And you can't get to the vulnerability until you offer the silence and the space and the, and the listening to allow the anger to uh, spend itself, to dissipate. Uh, and it's only being able to share the vulnerability where you can have a much more productive dialogue. 
That's Aaron Wolf, water negotiator and professor of geoscience at Oregon State University. We'll have more from our conversation with him, plus later a visit with two U.S. citizens who have thrown their hearts, minds, and wallets at trying to improve the water quality in one rural Kenyan village. That's ahead on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. Listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're learning how and why negotiations over water resources usually seem to transcend other differences between nations in conflict. Our guest is Oregon State University professor Aaron Wolf, who for some time has been helping facilitate water negotiations around the globe. Here's Carol Boss. Well, you also have incorporated into mediation and conflict resolution uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of human needs. And I would like you, if you can, to um, briefly explain that for listeners who may not be familiar. Sure. The, the, four, the four worlds or the four levels are the physical uh, what you, what you actually physically need to to get through the day, then the emotional, how you feel about something, how you interact with the world through your your senses, your feelings, your your emotions. The third level is the intuitive, the kind of intellectual, the measurable, the quantifiable, a kind of mental in, intuition about about how uh, things work. And then the the fourth level is the spiritual, the recognition of the of the interconnectedness um, of beings and and relationships between people and the divine. So Abraham Maslow publicized, and I, I, I use that term on purpose, he, he talked about a hierarchy of needs that uh, goes through our, our physical, our, our emotional, our intuitive, and our, our spiritual in kind of sequence. He says we can't really think about, for example, long-term uh, sustainability issues if we're hungry, uh, that we really need to meet each of these needs in sequence. And I say he publicized it rather than, than he invented it because what it turns out is that this uh, sequence of, of four worlds or four uh, levels of understanding or four perceptions of lenses of perceiving the world turns out to be fairly universal. So, so even though we call it Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I, I'm convinced he stole it from God. Uh, we find it in, in Judaism, the, the 
prayer service, the morning prayer service, is a guided meditation through these four levels of being. In Buddhism, uh, we talk about the four noble truths that, that move through the same sequence or four jhanas of, uh, of meditation that move through the, the same sequence. In shamanic tradition or in native uh, traditions, uh, the four worlds exist uh, also in the same sequence. Well, the idea in, in water resources or in any negotiation is that, is, is that it's very difficult to think rationally uh, about, say, moving water from, uh, from one economic uh, activity, say, growing rice, to another, say, uh, producing microchips, if somebody's thirsty. So the idea, if we're talking about allocating water, we, we can't just talk about who has the rights to the water, but we have to ask, what do they need it for, and recognize that people who are desperately thirsty, their needs need to be met first. I think a real good way to illustrate it is if you could talk about the re- relevance of, of this in the ongoing uh, talks between Israeli and Palestinians. This was a wonderful example of how we use the word water or any resource or any issue differently depending on on uh, where we are in 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 these uh, states so when when the Arabs and Israelis started talking about water, um, the Palestinian delegation uh, insisted on on talking about rights they wanted their historic rights recognized. They wanted to talk about past injustice. They wanted to talk about the fact that they didn't have enough for their uh, for their daily needs. They, they really wanted a, a history-based discussion. And the Israelis wanted to talk about allocations. They wanted to talk about the future. Their argument was both Israelis and Arabs are out of water. Why bother talking about the past? Let's just share what we have and move into projects that can help both of us. And it was a real impasse uh, in the negotiations. What's clear, if we see these four worlds, what's clear what was going on is that for the Palestinians, in Gaza, for example, people literally don't have enough uh, fresh, clean water for survival. The, the not, there's not enough water at all, and what is there is of such poor quality that it's not healthy for the population. So when they were saying water, they were either talking about physical water or emotional water, water representing the occupation, water representing the Israelis having their hand on the Palestinian tap, uh, representing not having uh, sovereign uh, control over their own resources. And for the Israelis, where, where people don't die of thirst and where the water is, is drinkable, they were thinking at this third level, at this intellectual level, we can move water from agriculture into industry. We can price water at different levels. And so there was a clear uh, disconnect between past and future or between these, these three levels which were interacting. And currently, if we look in the, in the southwest, for example, uh, we're, we're uh, on Hopi land. Uh, at one point, um, there was a suggestion to move water, f- use Hopi water to, to transport coal slurry. The transportation is a very physical use, but for the Hopi, the water itself was spiritual water. So again, we see these disconnects uh, often in, in negotiations and understanding how to, how to move through those in sequence and understand the disconnects when they come up is, is critically important. I, I really understand the sensitivity of um, what situations um, you can you you cannot talk about it and i'm wondering if you can uh, t- 
tell a story, um, of course, not identifying individuals or even nations that might be an example of good conflict resolution and action, and action mm, something mm. that you tried and it worked. Mm, mm. So there's, there's a river system in, in Southeast Asia where a number of nations um, had come together to work out how to do transboundary environmental impact statements. In other words, if, if there's an environmental impact, a pollutant or something that crosses a border, how do we assess what the impact of that uh, environmental damage is going to be? These particular uh, discussions were, were deadlocked. There was one country in particular that was just adamant they weren't going to sign any, any statement at all. They weren't, weren't going to come to any agreement about how to do these uh, transboundary impact assessments. Um, and, the, and the whole process was at, was at an impasse. Um, I, I think it was, this was a moment where uh, it, was, it was simple listening. It was... Um, we were seated we were seated next to each other which which i thought was useful we were able to con- construct a setting where there was enough silence to allow the representative from that country to express very very clearly what the objection was and so it started out of course with anger and with accusations about how everybody else was out for their detriment or or didn't have their um, best interests at heart, and and again, anger generally is masking uh, some vulnerability. So after quite a long tirade, where uh, to their credit, the representatives from the other countries just sat in silence and listened, that anger finally was dissipated, and the accusations were dissipated, and then very very slowly. Uh, in the subtext and in the silence, it became clear that the technical people from this country weren't quite sure how to do a transboundary environmental impact assessment. And the vulnerability that they were masking was they thought everybody else was more skilled at, uh, technically than they were and that they therefore would not be able to, to keep up. And once that came out, it was very easy to reframe that particular point rather than coming to an agreement that instead, uh, why don't we spend a year or so collectively skills building? Just let's all learn the the techniques to how to do these things together. Uh, And that then leads to relationships. That then leads to confidence building. That then leads uh, the representatives from this country to have the confidence to be able to come back and come to an agreement. You mentioned taking the boundaries off a map, but how else do you get people to reach those levels of presence and honesty necessary for the conflict resolution? That's, that's an excellent question. I think the, the, the skills um, that come out of this world, that come out of the, the spiritual world that are helpful to these settings uh, are very uh, subtle skills uh, and yet very profound. As I said, silence is use of silence is critical. Uh, being trained, really trained, in not in what we call active listening, which is useful in conversation, but not useful when, when there's real hurt present. Uh, other people train in what's called transformative listening or deep listening. Um, this is a real skill that needs to be treated like a skill and, and taught and mastered. 
the the seating arrangement in the room. Uh, people do different things. Um, in in India, for example, sometimes there will be a seat with sandals on the seat. This represents the god Hanuman, uh, who had, at one point left his sandals behind to to represent him. Uh, what this does is is reminds people for whom this is important that a god or god is in the room. People handle themselves uh, very, very differently. Something as simple, Carol, as, as when we're doing the opening introductions. Uh, generally, again, in the West, we're taught we introduce ourselves in hierarchy, where we're from, where our degree's from, what technical training we have. We put ourselves linearly up or down on a hierarchy. Uh, and something as simple as w- introducing a group one by one, tell us your name and a story about your relationship with water, or how you got into water, or a story about the watershed where you grew up. Something as simple as that, by the time we've gone around the room, rather than putting ourselves in a linear hierarchy, we've rather crafted, started to craft a community where our shared values are starting to become apparent or our shared histories or, or the things that we value together uh, are now more apparent on the table. These are the, are the very subtle skills that, that are very useful from, the, from spiritual communities that can be profoundly helpful in uh, negotiation settings. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions uh, in terms of what our listeners can draw from what we were just talking about in terms of um, their relationship with water mm, and, our, mm. and our sense of thinking about water as a shared resource in our communities. Thank you for that uh, question, Carol. Yeah, I, I think through water, I think at any level, all of us are in a watershed. Uh, water, again, is, is the kind of um, uh, venue that, that induces all of us, regardless of our political bent, regardless of our economics, regardless of any of the differences that we have with each other, it induces people into the room. And at all levels, whether it's a local watershed council or a regional uh, issue you may have in your community, uh, generally, more and more often, we're urged to, to get involved uh, with the water resources around us. And it, it's a wonderful way to, to sit with uh, members of the community that we may or may, may not sit with normally and have a dialogue about our shared uh, futures. So I think you touched earlier about um, some of the differences between the conflict resolution process internationally versus, uh, let's say, in this country. Have you had a bit of experience on a more local level as what I mean by that is nationally as opposed to internationally? Sure. I've I've had the good fortune to work with the the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, They manage water throughout the western states. And and I've been working with a number of of folks in in their offices to help uh, bring these kinds of skills uh, and these are people who are working at, uh, on the ground uh, with communities all over the U.S. West. And so we're, we're helping to, to bolster that skill set as well. Uh, and before I was at Oregon, I was at the University of Alabama where I was involved in the uh, tri-state water wars, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Believe it or not, 90 inches of rain a year and they still find something to, uh, to dispute over about. Uh, these issues are universal, and, and um, I think they bring about tensions at all, all different scales uh, universally, uh, but they also offer opportunities for dialogue at, at different scales universally. 
What about the virtues of um, patience in doing this work? Because hmm. coming to terms on a water treaty can take actually decades, can't it? Literally decades. If we look, uh, now again, p- people have signed treaties. The, the People who have the most political difficulties with each other, if we take Indians and Pakistanis or Azeris and Armenians or, or Arabs and Israelis, the famous conflicts around the world, generally those same groups have have signed water treaties or in the process of negotiating water treaties. And those treaties themselves tend to be very resilient uh, over time. Uh, But you're right. They take literally 10, 20, 30, 40 years to negotiate. And all the while, water is used as a... It induces tension. And and worse, if you can't manage water cooperatively, it's being mismanaged. And that really is the the tragedy of of, uh, water resources. It's not so much the danger of political conflict or military conflict. It's the fact that, that uh, people simply don't have enough safe, stable water resources for their survival. This is uh, two and a half to five million people die every year because of a lack of access to a safe, stable water supply. 250 million illnesses result, and about half of the world lacks access to sanitation. This is a, a catastrophe uh, numerically on the order of the catastrophes of the day. This is as big as malaria or AIDS and bigger than almost anything else. It's, it's bigger than all the wars in any given year put together. It's bigger than tsunamis and earthquakes. And uh, this is, this is, uh, this is a, a catastrophe of, you'll excuse me, a biblical proportion. A lot of human and physical catastrophes going on now on this planet. And I sense, though, that there are some things that give you hope, and I'm wondering what that might be. Well, I've, I've had the good fortune to sit in, in rooms with people who, who dislike each other intensely and watch them come to agreements uh, over this particular issue. Um, that, that's where the hope comes from. It's, it's being in the room when transformation happens. Uh, it's watching people being willing to compromise, being willing to, uh, to see the pain of the other uh, and take it upon themselves to help alleviate that pain. Where are water negotiations going to be making headlines next in the United States or in places where Americans should be looking ahead to to avoid future disputes over water? Oh, I think we'll see we'll see both disputes and um, increasingly elaborate and creative solutions everywhere in the United States. Everywhere, as I said, in the southeast, they get 90 inches of rain a year, and there's not enough for everybody to meet their needs. We're going to see uh, real issues. We already do in the southwest, in the in the northwest, um, all along the eastern seaboard. Everywhere there's water flowing, we're just simply out of easy water. Uh, so I, I think this is going to be an increasingly uh, immediate uh, problem not just around the country, but around the world. Is there something you would like people to think about from all of your experience with water resources when they turn on their water faucet that might connect them with a desire to promote peace? Hmm. Hmm. 
That's wonderful. Well, yeah, I think if if you thought about where the water that are, that comes out of your tap started from, and think about all the connections, uh, all of the tributaries, all of the processes, all of the the different types of land and different types of uses and different users who had access to it or touched it or or were involved with it. Uh, And then to add the whole hydrologic cycle as it goes basically around the world, if you really thought about the the trip that that water has taken, uh, you can't help but be enriched by by the connection that, that, uh, that, that water brings to us. We're able to work with water because it, it touches every facet of our being. Whether it's the it's the most um, most mundane, it, our livelihoods or our just our, our very survival, but also the aesthetics of water, the peace that, that you get just being by it. People like to to be near it. People uh, like to be in it. It's a wonderful way. To, to help us think about our relationship both with each other and, and with, with nature. Aaron Wolf, thank you so very much for spending time with us today on Peace Talks Radio. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Carol. Thank you. Aaron Wolf, water treaty negotiator and professor of geoscience at Oregon State University. For our complete conversation with him, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and follow the links to the September 2009 episode. Next up, two Americans translate their compassion for a water-challenged Kenyan village into action. When Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, how the effort to address the world's water needs can strike a compassionate chord, whether among international rivals or in individuals, inspiring peaceful, humane solutions. Some years ago, two Californians, Matt and Christina, had an opportunity to chaperone a group of Oakland inner-city high school students on an overseas field trip to help expand a school building in a rural Kenyan village, about 50 miles southeast of Nairobi. When they learned of the unsafe water supply in that village, Matt, Christina, and the students went on to raise funds to supply the village with water purification packets and to build rain gutters and purchase a water storage tank to help improve the village water supply and satisfy some of the basic needs required to live in peace and security. The couple then formed a nonprofit organization called Other Paths to allow them to pursue their mission to both offer other paths to inner-city youth and also to offer other paths to security and peace to rural villages in places like Kenya. 
Matt and Christina Berlin are a married couple now living in New Mexico, and they spoke with Carol Boss. We went into this with an idea of helping a friend do a specific thing. But when we got there, um, we learned in talking with the people who run the villages, just in conversations with them while we were building on to this school, uh, they were saying our water situation is very bad. And they took us down to the river and showed us where they drew their water. Um, and we saw the animals walking through the water as the women were pulling water. How bad was their water? Um, it's undrinkable, really. From a from a, an American standpoint, it would make you incredibly sick. Um, it's something that we couldn't really handle or, or get in or, or wade in. We couldn't walk in it barefoot. We just don't have the immunity to, you know, the immune system to do that. Um, and that's the problem that they have with their children. Children under the age of five in Kenya are susceptible to all the waterborne diseases that are in that water because their immune systems haven't had a chance to develop. And so the mort- mortality rates uh, for children under the age of five there are quite high just from waterborne disease alone. Malaria is one of the biggest problems they face, but waterborne disease is second. So you came back to the States determined um, that you were going to take this to another level. And I, I, I want to know about that and also about um, – I'd like to hear more about the impact on the, on, on the kids that went mm-hmm. because I'm sure, not knowing all their stories, that there was probably a lot of hopelessness in their lives and maybe not a good mm-hmm. sense of their future or their place in this world. And I want to know if there was – if you started seeing any changes. Well, um, as far as – going growing this program i think once we all came back it, it was amazing because i was i remember sitting in my classroom and a couple we had been home a couple of days and one of the students came in and she sat down and we were talking and she said you know miss alex things look visually different and i said me too <laughs> i thought it was just me and just you know, in, in those conversations with with all of the, all of us who went on this adventure, there was really no choice for I think any of us but to go back and because it, I mean these are this is something we can do. We can do more for for this group of people. We can't change the world. We can't even change all of Kenya. But for these three villages, we can help these folks we have uh, they've told us what they need and it's not I wanted to make that clarification we're not going in telling them what we think they need while we were there they told us what they need so we're taking that information and that's what we're growing into that's why we're going back and doing you know more clean water efforts (laughs) some of the things that we discovered while we were there are Things like the pure purifier of water packet is is a, an interim solution as we look for, for long-term sustainable solutions for them. So we're looking at things like borehole wells and larger water filtration systems and things where they can have more municipal water s- systems that are clean as opposed to individual or building-related water systems that are clean. But I wanted to answer your question about some of the transformational effects also. Um, when I went into this, I didn't know many of the kids at her school, uh, at St. Elizabeth High School. Uh, they were kind of an unknown factor for me. I just went because I was, I was determined to, to participate. One of the young men, another one of the young men that was on the project was a guy named Edwin, and his family is from El Salvador. 
and they had fled the trouble in that region back in the 80s before he was born. And his family had settled in uh, the rural districts, the valley districts of, of Northern California. So his, his home was actually very far away from the school that he attended. Um, and he didn't always make it to school, from, from what I heard. And when he got to Kenya, I think the change that, that happened for him was he left Kenya saying, I want to do this for El Salvador. So mm-hmm. that was... Right. That was quite powerful. I know on your website it says that other um, paths provide sustainable public health solutions for the people of rural Kenya. Mm-hmm. And then it says it all begins with water. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what that really meant for you. I mean, I think we all understand the importance of water and having clean water. But mm-hmm. something probably hit you in a really big way that you wanted to continue on this path, so Well, to speak. I think that... One of the things that the folks in these villages um, are missing is health care. They don't have a health clinic. If they get sick or, you know, they get bitten by a snake or are having a baby, they have to travel about eight hours on foot unless they happen to have access to a vehicle in order to get to a clinic. So... Our thought was, well, and this is one of the things, again, that they said that they need. It's like they, they need a healthcare clinic. And if they had the clean water system, well, then the government would come in and help them with a doctor or a nurse. And UNICEF would come in and provide um, some of the medication to to supply the, the clinic. And so, well, and that's a no-brainer. So we get you... The, the water and we build the clinic <laughs> so that and and the government is I mean we've just started this process and the the structure of the clinic is built and the government has already come in and provided more support to these people than they even anticipated so yeah water water was the key to making water all that was happen the key. With all the efforts and and the work that's been done by your organization and 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 with the students and the transformation that's happened with them and the sense of possibility and the sense of um, seeing that they can make a positive impact in the world, do you see that as a bridge to peace in any way? Absolutely. Whether it's between cultures, whether it's within the village, whether it's um, within oneself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that we learned in this process since since our initial trip there in 2007, uh, Kenya is a very unstable country. Uh, they had violence after their elections at the end of 2007. 2008, it was, uh, from our perspective, from the Western perspective, the entire country was in meltdown, but uh, it really wasn't. There were specific areas that it was just not safe to be in. Where we Where we worked, where our friends are, uh, it was relatively peaceful at the time. But you see a country like Kenya is at the crossroads of a lot of places, like the Sudan is just to the north, Ethiopia is to the northeast, the, Tanzania, other places, Uganda. There there are pressures exerted on Kenya, and because it has a seaport that services other places, it's a crossroads of a lot of conflict. And I think one of the things that uh, can provide stability political stability and economic stability is a foundation of providing for the basic needs of the population. And I think for Kenya, it's very simple, food and water, water being primary. Uh, 
and then healthcare and things, basic necessities that they, uh, that they require to be stable in their own lives. And I think stability in your life brings stability to your community, and it spreads out from there. Do you have maybe a story about a particular individual, whether it's child or adult in the village, maybe someone who's sort of a spokesperson or maybe not? That well, I just love Morris. Morris is one of the village elders. And in our this is great. Morris, in our first trip, we were, it was our last couple of days, and we had been you know teaching the people in the village how to use the pure, how, you know, how to clean the water with the pure packets. And he comes up to me, and he he has this glass of water that we have cleaned, and he says, "Christy, why do I need this?" And I said, "Well, you know, because." It, it's it's clean water. It's better than drinking the water that has not been clean because, you know, it clears, kills the bacteria and yada, yada, yada. And I'm not sick, Christy. <laughs> and I said, no, no, Morris, you're not sick. But, you know, what about the babies? And he, he was like, ah, the babies. Yes, they could. They need this. And but what we needed was his seal of approval so that, you know, so that he, people would once we left people would still use this product and he gave his seal of approval and and there you go that kind of translates to the other villagers like this is something that's important and um you know maybe maybe we should you know continue to um, uh, try to help ourselves with these with these clean water programs whether it's coming from us or coming from somebody else. And, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the domino effect of, you know, you reach the village elders like, like Morris and um, other people will, will follow. So. so I'm wondering if you have any ideas for listeners about how they too can make a difference in this kind of a, a way well, you know, I think the difference there there is an exchange. There's a difference that you make in the lives of other people, like the people that live in these villages. But there's also the difference that you make in your own life, and again, in the lives of those around you. And it is an extremely humbling experience to be immersed in a culture, and and it was culture shocking at first, but to be immersed in a culture um, where people are so amazingly generous and who are so welcoming. And when you come back to the United States, it's, you kind of start to look at what's really important around you and what will be important to me might be different for the person who traveled and who is then sitting next to me but it's it's the difference that you make in your own life as well as the difference that you're making in the lives of other people it, it's all connected it's not you know giving you know charity giving to a group of people, it's the interaction and it's the making friends and actually sitting down and, and talking to people and, you know, kind of like my dad said, and hearing, you know, their stories from them and, you know, not having it filtered through, 
you know, a third party like myself. But, you know, go and I mean, even if it's locally, you know, go hear what people are, are saying and what their needs are. And it, it really offers a, a different life perspective. I think even at the individual level, that it, that effect of being able to listen um, kicked in. I think that's something, a skill that we all picked up initially in our initial trip that we've used again. In a way, the, the, the language barriers, which, which are not too, too bad uh, because they, they spoke very good English and they were very accommodating for us, but we had to listen very intently to them to hear what they were saying. And then we had to listen a little deeper to hear what they were actually asking us in terms of help. Um, and I think that's something that listening, being a valuable skill toward peace, is a good is a good bridge. Listening to other people, even if it's not something that you're accustomed to hearing or something that you may not agree with, I think it's it's important to develop that awareness of what other people are telling you as opposed to what they're saying. Um, and that's something that was valuable for us then. And it's something that that I think, at an individual level, I've I've tried to accommodate or uh, tried to work into the way I interact with people one on one. I also think that there are lots of things that you can do to 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 help people in your own community uh, improve the quality of their life. And in doing so, making those connections with people, you're building bridges to understanding, which to me is the foundation of peace. What would you like our listeners to see that you think would change the way they think about water and about their day-to-day approach to living? When you see um, some, not even see, when you smell some of the water that these folks drink, um, and even with the pure packets, we pulled water from one river that, and you know, when you are putting powder and water and you're stirring it up and you tell people to drink, well, you got to drink first. So, and I looked at this water and I said, I don't know. (laughs) I think I might get sick after this one. But when you see that daily, it makes me think when I'm taking my shower and I love my long hot showers when I'm taking my shower, when I'm drinking my own water, when I'm watering the grass or I'm, you know, giving water even to the dog. I always think that, you know, there are people who, who you know, are our friends who don't have this. It just makes you really thoughtful about being a, what we consume. And I think that's one of the things that... Matt and I had said years ago is, you know, we, you know, we want to be producers in the world and consume less. Matt and Christina Berlin, the married couple whose organization Other Paths has been assisting a rural village in Kenya purify its water supply and improve water storage and delivery. For more information about their organization and to hear our complete conversation with them, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. Also on our website, you can hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. Sign up for a free podcast or email newsletter. And also learn how you can help support this program with a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit organization. It's all happening at peacetalksradio.com. We also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was written and is performed by Allie Adelman. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. 
Thanks for listening and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.